Hi, I'm Damien Mew, CEO of AIA Australia New Zealand, and we are proud to bring you this Future Women production. At AIA, our purpose is to make a difference in people's lives and champion Australia to be the healthiest nation in the world. In this pursuit, we are passionate about supporting women to live healthier, longer, better lives. It's not always easy. That's why we believe in dreaming big but thinking small, as good health starts by making small, healthy changes. Visit aavitality.com.au to find out how we can support and reward you to take your first small steps to a healthier you. This podcast is brought to you by Future Women, a new home for women to come together online and in person. Become a member to gain full access to Future Women's content, events and community, plus our packed calendar of member-only social club events. For more details, head to futurewomen.com. For the first time in my life, I could feel my heartbeat in my ribcage pounding like really hard. It's like I could hear it. And I remember there was just this one second where I could feel it and I thought about it and I thought, this is a moment of derailment. I can either like shift from the plan or I can just breathe through this and stick with what I know. Hi there, welcome to Future Women with Sylvia Jeffries, where we climb inside the brilliant minds of successful female founders and learn how they've spun their simple ideas into global game changers. So whether you're in business, own one, or dream of doing it for yourself, these conversations will guide you through the keys to development, scale and investment with a heavy hit of humour and reality on the side. Alyssa Camplin, welcome to Future Women. It's a pleasure to be here. Such a pleasure to pin you down because I know that that is not an easy task. You're (laughs) a very busy woman uh, and travelling between your current home of Hong Kong and Mm -hmm. Melbourne and Sydney and wherever the week takes you. Um, And we'll get to all of that shortly, but I want to start in 2002 with the big moment that probably a lot of our listeners will remember. You've made it to the Olympic final in Salt Lake City. Your name's been called. You're out of the barrier. What's rolling through your head? Um, I want to say it was this dramatic moment, but to be honest, we'd prepared so hard for that. We'd rehearsed that situation. I had a plan for like five minutes before the moment, a plan for being in the start gate, a plan for like when I look at the jump and the last 15 seconds before I went. Um, And really the only thing that was different to the way I expected it to go and the way we'd rehearsed it was... For the first time in my life, I could feel my heartbeat in my ribcage pounding like really hard. It's like I could hear it. And I remember there was just this one second where I could feel it and I thought about it and I thought, this is a moment of derailment. I can either like shift from the plan or I can just breathe through this and stick with what I know. And just in that moment, I got this focus and clarity back and just fell into everything we'd rehearsed and trusted went down the ski run, stayed in the moment and sort of the next really tangible moment I can remember was just getting this look down the landing hill and it just looked so perfect and I thought, wow, what a beautiful landing site and I just put my feet down and all of a sudden I could hear again, I could hear the crowd and everything and it was, so it was very much in the moment, I want to say that it was like just this big epic thing but it was, you spend all your time as an athlete trying to play it down and keep it calm and um and, and not overplay those moments so that you, you know, can really just do what's natural. Because if you overthink it, then you usually screw it up. So everything is silent for you when you're spinning in the air? Yeah, a little bit because I'm intuitive to what I can feel. 
for me, it was a lot about um, rhythm and pace. Like I, I would use a lot of sensory things in visualizing um, and, and trampoline training and things like that. So all the accumulation of that was very much being present in the moment and feeling all of those things and just responding to them. It all happens so quick. Like an aerial skiing jump takes three and a half seconds. So if you stop really to be conscious, <laughs> you've lost the moment. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, being in, in the field for it all and, and trusting, I guess. When you stuck that landing... Did you know that was a gold medal winning jump? Um, no, I didn't really. I kind of went to the Olympics just wanting to be able to come out the other side with no regrets and to be able to live with myself whatever happened. And when I landed that jump, I had come, put down two triple twisting double somersaults and to the best I could under the pressure of the moment. And I knew that that was going to be enough, that I would be satisfied. My first jump had me in third place. So technically speaking, landing that jump should mean that I'd be sort of on the cusp of a medal, depending on what other people did. But I knew I could only do uh, and focus on what I could control. And I couldn't change what the judges thought or what anyone else did. So it was really just then waiting to see how the scores would all transpire. Um, I do remember getting this just moment of shock though because I had wanted to go to the Olympics since I was five years old. I was 27 at the time. I'd put eight years into this pursuit of aerial skiing and worked my butt off really with a sports psychologist for the last 12 months to keep downplaying it all and just to make it about process. What can I control? What do I need to do to execute two good jumps? And then to be on the other side of all of that and for it to be done and all the emotion to have mm -hmm. come out and just like, oh my God, I landed. I'm just so grateful. And that was a really big shock because I'd never, ever thought beyond that moment. I had made no plans for the rest of my life. I hadn't <laughs> thought about a party afterwards. I hadn't really thought about what would eventuate. It was, um, yeah, then just What's a matter next? Of, yes. Yeah. And what came next was that um, the next girl fell and then the next girl did a surprisingly easy jump and I just went from third into second into first and, yeah, and then I, I think it's fair to say it was kind of the shock of my life to go, wow, in theory, I knew this was possible, but holy hell, mm. I have just won the Olympics. <laughs> so, and you're, you're there on the podium and you've got all of Australia cheering. You're the first female skier to win a gold medal at the Winter Olympics, which is an extraordinary achievement. But you had asked your family not to go. Yeah. Um, like I said earlier, I had wanted to go to the Olympics since I was five. I grew up watching sport. My family, like we just watched every different Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, golf, sailing, whatever it was, anything Australia was in, cricket, footy. Um, so we were really, our whole lives growing up had been around big moments of sport as spectators and whilst my family wanted to come and spectate me in my moment it just felt like it would be too much pressure and one of the things I'd done with my sports psychologist was to anything I couldn't control to eradicate it remove distractions just focus on what I could control keep it calm keep it simple and the one thing I really felt that I couldn't put aside would be the pressure of disappointing my family if they'd come all the way in 2002, the exchange rate with the US dollar was 51 cents. It was going to cost them like 30 grand. We didn't have that money. We're a middle income family. And so I just said to them, listen, this is too big. You just can't come. And then um, as it turned out, um, I got injured um, six weeks before the Olympics. And my mum just thought, I can't not be there. If she, if she can get back for this, She's going to need me no matter what happens. If she falls on her head, I want to be there. And fortunately, she didn't tell me she was coming. And my mum and my sister hid behind an Australian flag in the stadium and only revealed themselves after I <laughs> landed. 
which was just amazing because I had this sincere moment after the crowd erupted and there's just this quiet point and I thought, God, I've just won the Olympics and there is literally nobody here for me to You'd celebrate love to with. hug some family. Yeah, and it was um, as they were preparing for the flower ceremony that there was just this mass screaming and I looked around and my mum and sister were being body surfed down the oh, stadium. Amazing. <laughs> into the arms of police officers that then uh, brought them over. So it was an unbelievably special moment. So you're so grateful they were there in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I'm d- but I'm also grateful I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you had hurt your ankle um, right in the lead up to Salt Lake, hadn't you? But that's, I mean, you've broken just about every bone in your body. And when we mere mortals watch aerial skiing, we all collectively, I think, hold our breaths because it is an extreme sport, really. Probably the most dangerous, right, in the skiing world. Talk me through some of the injuries you have had, some of the more severe injuries. Well, you're right. I did. I broke both my ankles six weeks before the Games. I've also dislocated shoulders, I've cracked ribs, I've torn my Achilles tendon, I had two back-to-back knee reconstructions leading into the Torino Olympics, Um, I've had concussions, um, hand reconstruction, pretty much done every joint across my shoulders. Um, So yeah, you've got to be tough, it's not a sport for the (laughs) faint-hearted. And all the Australian aerialists who came before me and after me were just really like tough. But you've got to be careful with injuries and you know fortunately we've had great support to help us get back over the years but I think a lot of it too is sort of mindset when I broke my ankles it would have been very easy to have just thought well the dream is gone and just fallen in a heap when in fact you know what you just turn to plan b and you say well you know what take six weeks to recover that's long enough I can't get injured again and miss the games so for me visualization and mental imagery became a really big part of my preparation for Salt Lake and um, really show me that you know the power of the mind is incredible and even when I blew out my knee three and a half months before the Torino Olympics everyone said you're not going to get back and I'm like how dare you discount me mm-hmm. <laughs> like haven't I shown you that I can get back from stuff in the past and unfortunately because I had two back-to-back knee reconstructions in the last two years before Torino I'd probably only jumped 12 days on snow so again I had to really rely on self-belief and I guess mindset and visualization but it's sort of if you think you can you can you know if you, yeah. you can't half believe you know you really have to you're all in yeah you really have to dig deep and fortunately for me I did a lot of scenario planning leading into Salt Lake City jumping in bad weather and um, visualizing disruptions to competitions and Salt Lake was beautiful blue sky day and I didn't need any of it but by the time I got to Torino off the back of very little preparation it was one of the worst competitions you could imagine as far as the weather went and the disruption of the flow of the competition and I remember standing there in the final just looking around me at all the other athletes freaking out thinking wow this just is so annoying it's so bad and I just thought thank goodness I put all the preparation into all the different scenarios because this is now going to be my competitive advantage. It's all like mental now. And that's, I think, how I picked up the bronze that day. Where does that determination come from? Is that a foundation laid by your parents? Uh, I think the determination probably came in a few different ways, like early sport for sure and having successes in junior sport. And um, I grew up in a street of boys, so I was sort of fighting for my pride in the street and um, you know, we used to play footy and cricket, but we'd play army and warfare and they're like, you be the nurse. I'm like, no way. I want to be the sergeant. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, just riding my bike and trying to keep up with them. And But my parents also, I feel really lucky because you don't get to choose your parents. And 
I think that they were ahead of their time. Like my dad was a real thinker and a planner and he really tried to instill in us a sense of excellence. You know, if you're going to do something, do it properly. And my mum was really passionate and hardworking and driven. And between the both of them, when we had ups and downs in our life as young kids, you know, they were there to catch us and hug us and love us, but also to teach us the lesson and talk us through things. And with three girls in the family living in a street of boys, my dad was like, you can do anything, you know, Mm. take it to the world. And he used to teach me how to box so that I could like defend my sisters if the boys got too rowdy. And so I kind of never felt any sort of gender limitations. And I always felt strong and powerful. And that's, I guess, because my parents, the way they raised us. But they also were really strong on you know, your school report card's really important and to be able to go out and do your sport and train, it's a privilege and, you know, your hockey stick, you'll get that for Christmas from Santa. It's not a right that you can have all of this equipment. When I was 14, they're like, go out and get a job. You're going to need to pay your way. So a combination between parenting and some really positive early experiences in junior sports, some great coaches around me who taught me some big lessons. And then oddly enough, I would say the determination was probably enhanced by setbacks. Mm-hmm. missing out on national teams when I was 12, getting stress fractures when I was 16 as a gymnast and not being able to take my spot on the state team because of injury. And then when I did get into aerial skiing, people saying, oh, you'll never make it, you're too old. You know, you can't not see snow and then think you're going to go to the aerials within eight years. Um, so people sort of putting it to me that it wasn't going to happen. And then I think I was sort of the one that could if you can hang on as part of the development team you can stay in the sport but please don't embarrass us Um, (laughs) and so I wasn't making those sort of early cuts to be on the world cup team and things like that and I just remember one time not getting selected and it is right that I shouldn't have been selected you know of all the development athletes I was the one that was not landing the most I was asked to stand outside while everyone else was brief for the competition. And I remember standing out there thinking, I will never let this happen again. Mm-hmm. And I just doubled down on my commitment, my training. And yeah, and that sort of took off from there. Uh, you retired in 2006. Mm-hmm. What tools did you have to help you to navigate through that transition? Because we know that that transition for a lot of athletes is a very difficult one. Yeah. It is a difficult one, but I was in some ways fortunate because when I was learning to ski, I was going through university and I did an IT business degree and did my internship with IBM. And then as I was learning to ski, I was working at IBM full time. And so I I got a business corporate grounding and my whole way up to the Olympics, I was still going back and forth between professional work and training. It was the only way I could pay for it. That meant that I always knew how fortunate I was to be skiing because I knew what hard work was and and what kind of world I would return to. But it also meant that I had vocation, other skills. And to be honest, I think that professional side was a differentiator for me as an athlete because it influenced the way I went about risk management, my planning, my level of preparation, the accountability I held myself to, the way I was able to bring together external resources and create sort of a broader team to enable success. And a part of that was going out and finding a sports psychologist. And that literally changed my life as well as my chances of achieving my ultimate potential as an athlete because mindset and regulation and distraction control and trust and overthinking all the different things Mm. that athletes face was what was keeping me inconsistent one week I'd be second and then I'd be 27th and then I'd be third and then I'd come last and once I started working with a sports psychologist that unlocked 
my ability to be a consistent performer and to, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is that it's unfortunate in life people say, oh, toughen up and people think mindset and mental control and mental strength is just attitudinal when actually as my sports like show me all these tools and techniques which I then was able to apply to sport and also trying to apply them to my life so that mm. I was actually living and breathing those techniques. And so then when I finished sport, those were the things that, you know, I took forward. So I think a combination of combining high-performance sport, being in a corporate environment, learning all these amazing techniques from a sports psychologist who I worked full-time with for five years meant that when I retired, I kind of knew the world I was going to go back to from a professional perspective, but I also had acquired a whole lot of different skills. Mm. I wouldn't say the transition out of sport was easy. I felt like a bit of a fish out of water a little bit, like I returned to IBM and uh, worked in sales and then did my leadership training and moved into people management role. But I always felt like I could focus more than people or for longer than people or sort of had higher standards. And probably slowly I was able to integrate and soften off the edges. Like you become pretty specific as an athlete particularly in a sport, as you said earlier, it's so dangerous. You've got to cross every I and dot every T. And so I think in sport, you things are a bit more binary. You know, you either landed your jump or you didn't. You either won or you didn't. Whereas in life and in business, it's, it's much more like a dance in the grey and you need to influence people and work broader teams and it's not just about you. So part of coming back into the workforce full-time was really just about evolving and learning how to dance in the grey where you can't control everything and I needed to use a lot more of the the leadership and probably Mm. um, sports psychology skills that I sort of acquired over time to help not just integrate but then thrive back in business after sport. And you climbed very high in the corporate ladder at IBM. How many years did you work there for? I was 18 years and worked in all different segments around the world, worked across sales, leadership in delivery, and then strategy and transformation in UK and Ireland as well as in Australia. So yeah, I've been very fortunate to have quite a spectrum of experiences in business environment. And what, what drove your decision to strike out on your own? Life actually. I was living and working in the UK. I'd met my husband, got married. We had our first child. I went on maternity leave. I remember thinking leading into maternity leave, wow, I'm not used to like stopping and not being in this sort of accelerated goal chasing time of life and feeling, wow, I'm not sure if I'm going to like enjoy this consolidation lateral phase of life. And then unfortunately, we lost our first son. He was born with a congenital heart disease and died after 10 days. Our son's name was Finnan and my husband and I were quite, guess, gobsmacked. And so we worked with counsellors and there's some unbelievable statistics about couples that lose a child not surviving the marriage and we just said you know that can't be us and so I took what should have been my maternity leave sort of 12 months to recover and I wanted to give that to myself Mm. so part of that recovery time was building a charity project that my husband and I called Finnan's Gift which in honour of Finnan's life and it's supporting cardiac care initiatives at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne in, in, in Australia, Australia. Yeah. and but they cardiac care across Australia but based out of Melbourne and then I just I thought Finnan's Gift to me was just to reappraise what was important to me you know you stand in the hospital and you see the nurses who just care so much and the doctors who are contributing so much to the greater cause of life and I just thought oh, 
I just want to explore more about what my life could mean and what more I could do. And uh, so, and there was so much in Finnan's gift that I don't think had I had my sports psychology background from sport that I would have been able to have coped as well, to be honest. Mm. Um, and still, you know, working with counsellors to process the grief was really important to us individually and together as a couple. But in treading through that period, I started to just look up and open my eyes to new opportunities. And somebody asked me if I would mentor a young CEO and I said, yeah, no problem. And then I helped that sort of start up to transition into a medium-sized organisation. And then somebody else asked me, would I join a board of a, an emerging company? I'm like, sure. And uh, so slowly inside, I just sort of said yes to a few things. And I liked, I, I loved, and I'm so grateful for the corporate training I had, but it was nice to get off what I call the tanker and jump on a speedboat, just sort of open my eyes to other capabilities that I had and particularly the convergence of big corporate business and high performance in sport and business as well as the high performance and behavioral science training that I'd had mixed in with resilience and sort of life Um, so I just found that I had something more to give Mm. and I just needed to find some new ways to to share it. I know you've met some of the families and the children who've benefited from Finnan's gift mm. over the years. What does that mean to you and how does it feel for you to meet those children who've used that equipment? We've met so many amazing families through Finnan's gift and we're eight years in. Finnan's passed away in 2011 and we've raised over two million dollars in that time which is thanks amazing. to thousands of donors and fundraisers. Mm. We're just a little mum and dad charity project but we really try to keep things simple. We go to the hospital every year and say, what is world-class, cutting edge, would really change the game for you that you don't have? And they tell us we commit and we spend a whole year fundraising and then around Finnan's birthday, we make the grant and hand over the money uh, so that they can have exactly what it is they need. So it's not complicated. Every dollar goes there. And I just hope that anyone that ever donates can literally stand at a barbecue and feel proud about and brag about what they have created. And so meeting some of these families, you see firsthand the impact of the gifts that we've been able to make. But even families who've had a negative outcome like us can have just randomly sometimes approached my husband and I on the street and just said, thank you so much. We were in the hospital and um, we saw some equipment with the Finnan's Gift logo on it and I'll ask after their child. And sometimes it's a really great story and sometimes it's a really sad story, but Finnan's Gifts enabled other families to join in and it's a framework that means that they can do something to either pay it forward or to remember and it's a lot bigger than Finnan now Mm. and that's I think what we really love most now is that it's a big community and it's a family and anyone impacted by any sort of form of cardiac issue can walk or run in the Melbourne Marathon or come to a ball or fundraise or donate on a birthday and yeah so it's been amazing it's been a huge part of our life it's a it's a lot of time and effort to to raise money but just last week we met a little boy who was kept alive and he's now seven months old and gone home and he benefited from six out of eight of the last pieces of equipment that we donated. that's so rewarding. Yeah, makes it makes it all feel worth it. I bet. Yeah. I bet. These days you're spending a lot of time in boardrooms. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the first time we met, we had a conversation about gender dynamics yeah. in boardrooms. How have you found that to operate? And have you had to adopt perhaps a masculine approach in order to survive in that environment? Big question. Mm. <laughs> I don't think 
I've had to adapt a masculine tone, but I feel like I've had to be my full best self. And that's what you should expect of people that are sort of running an organisation or sitting across the top and have the ultimate responsibility for large and sometimes very complex organisations, including, most importantly, people. So the job is serious to be a company director and I always feel like it's imperative I bring my A game and be my best self. So I prepare hard and I put in the hours and the time and then man or woman in the boardroom, Mm. I know if I'm delivering my A plus, then I can't expect anything more of myself. And sometimes I'm confronted by difficult negotiations or I'll put something forward and it doesn't quite get up or there'll be something on the table that I might disagree with and I'll, you know, I'll throw my opinion out there. And and that sometimes requires courage and bravery, but it's not because I'm the only woman at the table. It's because I can feel the importance of the situation and I know that it's imperative that I make something stick or I land or I've got two sentences to create impact. And so that's pressure. It's a performance situation. So for me, I I never really think about gender. I just think about how well I can perform at you know what my job is and so if things don't go well I might walk out and go well gee I felt shouted down today but it's not shouted down by the blokes it's shouted down because I didn't prepare well enough or I didn't read the room well enough or I wasn't skilled enough at the way I put something forward so I tend to just look at what I can control and that is my own effort and then I look at next what can I influence and I try to to do that as best that I can Mm -hmm. and men and women do work differently and do bring different things to the table and so understanding that and and working to that is just smart I think it's not necessarily sort of playing with the boys or playing with the girls Mm. it's just looking at what people's strengths and weaknesses are and uh, I try not to focus on the gender thing definitely champion um, where I can emerging women and women in the workplace and equal rights for all employees but again I just that's just not a male-female thing from my point mm. of view. You mentioned reading the room. Mm. That, I suppose, can be the make or break, can't it, in a boardroom environment when decisions yeah. are made, you know, in the split-second kind of nature. That requires you to be very nimble, I suppose, to yeah. read the room, but it, it means that you have to be a bit flexible, doesn't it? It does, and I think that goes back, you know, where I was talking about dancing in the grey mm. and, and everything's not binary. The other thing I learned early, you know, I've been a company director in all sorts of industries now over sort of 12, 13 years, and I made early mistakes. And like in sport, that's where I learned some big lessons. And sometimes things are getting away from you in the room and you think, wow, I missed the boat. This was all predetermined before everyone walked in the room. I haven't been having the right conversations um, and I didn't read the tea leaves two months ago. So again, that means that you're looking for the things that aren't said and you are trying to read the nuances of where things are going and having a lot of conversations with people um, so that you can almost interpret where things are going to go. But again, to me, that's part of the skills that are required and it's bringing your A-plus game is about knowing all the attributes you need and bringing a level of craft mastery, I suppose, to building your experience and and capabilities in each of the areas it requires Mm. to do your job. Your dad gave you some very early lessons on negotiations, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So my dad was a self-made businessman and he used to make us stand on the dining room table on our birthday every year and we would have to pitch for a pay rise in our pocket money. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah, and he never made it easy. You know, sometimes he'd sit on the far side of the room and sort of yelling and he'd go, don't yell at me, just project your voice. And mm. Other times he'd like be looking bored and tapping his fingers on the table or being really distracting and he's like, focus, come on. Then there'd be other times where he'd leave the room and, you know, I'm standing there on the table thinking, oh my gosh. Um, and my mum would sit there and sometimes my sisters and I'll, I'll never forget a time 
at the end he said, well, about halfway through I was already willing to give you the pay rise and you should have been able to read that on my face and you kept talking and you bought back the deal so you're not getting your pay rise this year. Oh. I'm like, oh, no, no. How did you pitch yourself? Well, I think he probably taught me over the years to focus on the value to the end user. He was always big about sales and, you know, he said everything in life is a sale and you've got to be able to sell yourself, but often you don't actually have the opportunity in the moment. So it's about value and selling is about solving somebody else's problem and providing a value to them. So, you know, I'm probably simplifying sales, but yeah, he he always sort of said to me, the decisions and some of the big turning points in your life will be made when you're not present it'll be before you enter the room or after you enter the room so it's important that you put your best out every time like your word your honor your performance it leaves a trail and that's your identity and um, that will forge your future without you even knowing it so be your best wherever Mm. you go and I guess that's always stuck so as a mentor as you are now what advice do you give to the men and women who you work with Mm -hmm. when it comes to negotiating probably do the preparation. It's really easy as an adult to not practice, to not prepare, to not look at all the what-if scenarios that could play out, to seek advice from a broad range of people, to grease wheels, to spend time understanding the impetus for the decision-making with the people that you're trying to interact with. A lot of the success is not in the moment, it's before the moment. I think that probably applies to anything you want to achieve in life, whether you want to close a deal or persuade someone left or right. It's the work that you do before and Mm. no different to preparing for an Olympics, to be honest. It's Mm. it's all in the training and the quality of the training. Mm -hmm. And what about more broadly for women in business Mm -hmm. who are perhaps having a tough time breaking down some barriers? Mm -hmm. What advice do you offer? Probably to be your best self, to put in the work, but also to surround yourself with good people. Get a coach, get mentors. I have three different mentors for the sort of breadth of things that I do. Not only do I board roles, but I run my own business and I consult. I do keynote speaking and all of those things. I don't assume that I'm ever going to be an expert in any of those things. So I'm constantly trying to master my crafts, but being coached and having good people around you who can provide critical feedback is really important. But I think the thing is that sometimes as women, we can take that that feedback too harshly. So reminding yourself about what you're doing well. It's easy to beat yourself up, but I think women don't pump themselves up enough. And so not only should you surround yourself with people that will pump you up, but you actually have to be able to do that for yourself. Mm. And it's not just about positive, positive, rah, rah. It's actually about looking at situations that have gone well and saying, well, what did I do well? And why did this positive thing eventuate? What were all the mechanisms and environmental factors that I influenced that enabled me to be successful today? So you can actually build an evidence base for your self-belief and your ability to actually make a tangible difference in, in the spaces that you that you operate. I think the other thing too is sometimes we look at everything as boom or bust and we if we can just look at more things as like learning and growing and a practicing field I will walk into meetings and I'll have very specific goals that I'm trying to work on as a professional things that I'm trying to enhance and I'll walk out of that meeting and I don't just look at the outcomes of the meeting I look at the outcomes of the things I was trying to apply myself to and when you do that you're actually appreciating that it's constant evolution to become your best self Sometimes women can just sort of beat themselves up because they weren't, mm. weren't perfect. Perfect every time. Yeah. Well, as you said earlier, it was the failure to be selected that then drove you to work harder and harder and eventually become a gold medalist. Yeah. And there's things you can't control. And if I can put my head on my pillow at night and know that I've delivered my best, then I'm satisfied mm. with that. And the other thing I would say is, you know, 
there's so much space, like pivot, move. If you're in a situation that is just not working, don't have to stay there. Take all your greatness and move one step to the right or turn left. I wouldn't sit in bad place places too long. Like you got to fight, but there's no point fighting a fruitless battle. Yeah. Would you say you have found a little bit more balance in your life since working for yourself? Probably not, actually. I'm finding it harder because I have a very portfolio, you know, mm. big portfolio of things I do. I still work with our Australian Winter Olympic teams. Um, you know, I do all our work in the charity as well as all my professional things. I've got a few employees in my business. And it just never ends. There's so many stakeholders and there's so many opportunities. And that's all goodness. But it's, it's difficult to manage the full spectrum of all of that. So, you know, the easy answer is do less. And I'm always trying to balance how broad I am versus how excellent I can be. Mm. Because the broader I get pulled, the less excellent I'm delivering. And that upsets me. Mm-hmm. Like excellence is a personal value of mine. So I'm constantly trimming. But I usually then put myself last. I'll put delivering my best professionally first and my team and my employees and my colleagues next and it's my family and my children and then last comes Elisa. So Mm -hmm. I actually have to flip that now. Probably a little bit of a martyr about that and it was getting me nowhere. Mm. Um, You have two children now, Florence and Felix. Yeah. You've moved to Hong Kong so that's Mm -hmm. and that's happened in the last year. So you have bitten a a lot (laughs) off in the in the last few years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Being a working mother has been a really challenging thing and that's where I got left out of the equation and I knew that and I was just sort of doing just barely enough but it didn't mean my life was as joyous as it should have been and then I started to feel that I wasn't my best self because when I'm happy and more fit and having a little more fun that I am more effervescent and I shine and I'm more creative and it's it's sad that it took me to realize that there was actually a negative impact on my ability to to be my best professionally before I started to give myself permission to look after myself a little bit better. But anyway, I have learnt that and probably interestingly one of the backbones of that was that I wasn't getting enough sleep and that didn't enable me to make good choices and I was less efficient in what I was doing. I was probably not the best, most positive mum all the time. Mm. So again, all of those compounding things, writing on the wall, Elisa has to put some time into herself. So that's what I've been doing really in 2019 and Mm. got to keep actually really focusing on it. Well, one of the other hats that you wear is AIA Vitality Ambassador, where ThinkWell is your pillar. And of course, at Vitality, they encourage people to get active, to live their best lives, and they are rewarded for that. And so you do a lot of work with the community at Vitality to encourage people to think well, to plan, and to focus on their mental resilience. What are some of the things that you're doing now day to day to enhance your own mental resilience? Do you know, it's really funny. I know so much, but I don't do it. And that's been my big wake-up call is that I actually have to do what I know. You know, practicing what you preach. Yeah, and I kind of did... It was just on the little small things that I was undoing myself. So now I'm trying to do more micro breaks, which includes meditation or exercise or walks throughout the day because I was getting to the end of the day and 
my tank was empty and then I was trying to rapidly top it up whether it was eating chocolate biscuits or binge watching TV or going to bed too late because I hadn't had enough joy throughout the day and so I've been able to repair that by doing more holistic things that sort of fill me up pop up my reserves I'm doing trying to do a lot more things with friends a lot more fun things a lot more spontaneous things so whether it's going bowling or going to the movies or catching up with girlfriends doing a lot more virtual coffees now with people virtual coffees yeah so like Skype and yeah at night <laughs> like when we all can't go out leave our toddlers in bed it's like well we can just jump on WhatsApp and what a great idea you know have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea at the end of the day and just have a a bit of a chat so that's been really good and funnily enough it's just been about unlocking new habits and changing my diary to make room for things and just sticking with them long enough so that the impact starts to resonate and I'm like I can't let go of this now this is too important to Mm -hmm. me so yeah in putting together the think well pillar for the AIA vitality program I actually went out and spoke to and built a network of academics within universities all around Australia in mindfulness, resilience, connectedness and goal achievement as well as some of the mental health bodies we have in the country. And I learned so much from them and I really just try to help tell stories and put the evidence base in the area of thinking well and mental well-being forward and sharing with through my life some of the things I'm doing right and some of the things I'm doing wrong and things that I learned from performance psychology through my sport and I guess to share my journey and to bring forward the academic evidence to everyone around how we can do more to think well in our life so that we can thrive and not just survive in our lives. What were some of the key takeaways from that research that you did? Um, Well it's always ongoing and there's so many things and you know (laughs) one of the really interesting things is people just think thinking well is about being mindful and meditating and it's just not that simple you know we need to have purpose We need to learn how to buffer change in life. Mm -hmm. We need to build and invest in our support structures and consider the community that we live in. Actually still being present and being able to manage our perspective and to regulate our emotions and get up every day and and go out and fight another battle when it's been a hard day. But that's life. You watch the news and it can be a bit doom and gloom and you look on social media and it's all glossy and perfect. Mm. And it's like, well, where does my life fit amongst this? And Mm. it's the roller coaster. And we just need to find a bit more joy in that and appreciate the growth and the challenges that come. And, you know, resilience, I can say, because Mm. having lost Finnan, you know, you don't always, you can't always bounce back to where you were. But if you can bounce forward and sort of take a little bit of learning or just breathe through a bit of a difficulty, give yourself a little bit of kindness or find empathy in other people's hardship too and Mm. just realize that we're all going through ups and downs in life and not to feel like you're out there doing your own battle and that there is tools and techniques Mm. and places to go or people to talk to that can enable you to acquire more experience and to better equip yourself and to me that's been one of the most amazing things with being involved with AIA Vitality is that genuinely trying to help people live healthier longer better lives to get more sleep to eat well to move well to do the little things that will enable them to navigate life's journey yeah what gives you the greatest joy these days a lot of things obviously spending quality time with my family and friends and but I really I really love helping people it can be helping my child can be helping someone on the street it can be helping a young up-and-coming professional woman I just feel really good when I have received so much in my life I feel really lucky um, that I can help facilitate something positive happen in somebody else's life sometimes it's the smaller things I think I really tried to notice more small good things there's so much bigness around and there's big opportunity but it's the small changes or the small laughters or Hmm. 
a flower or a raindrop or someone doing something nice that you just see and you think, wow, you know, there's there's a lot of things to be happy about in life. And that just feels like pennies in the bank for me. It just makes me feel yeah. good about where everyone's going. And you know, yeah. it's too easy to look at the things that might be holding us back or challenging us. Yeah. And there's a lot of uncertainty in the world today and about the future. You know, you think about artificial intelligence and all this new evolution that, that comes and that challenges big pockets of the community. Yeah, yeah sometimes I think it's the smaller things, it the is. day-to-day things. I haven't been able to run for a while because I've had a hip injury and that's probably my great mental outlet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a physical outlet, but it is psychological for me as well. Um, so I've been walking instead at sunrise a lot and mm. I am very lucky to live close to the water. And whenever I walk past the marina that's not too far from my house, I look out when the sun's rising and the water's still and the boats are just gently bobbing and it seems so cliche and corny but I get so much appreciation out of that and I walk back in through the front door of my house and I feel I feel lifted by it yeah. and it's such a simple thing isn't it but it gives you such a wonderful positive frame to begin your day. It's a choice too. I think mm. we can set up our start of our day, for example, to put ourselves into some much more positive situations. I think quite often we let life happen to us. You know, you choose to go down to the beach. You choose to stop and see the sunrise. You make the effort to say, wow, aren't I lucky that I saw that and to walk through your front door feeling mm. full because of it. I get that when I go into nature, you know, mm. or when I'm driving and I just see the most amazing gum tree or a wattle tree just arched over full of yellow, bright flowers and I just have this appreciation for nature. Maybe that's because, you know, all the years up in the mountains and things like that. Mm. But it can really enhance your life by choosing to see the positive things rather than the negatives. Do you miss the skis? I miss the freedom. Of and flying? So, <laughs> yeah, and, and the chance to just be amazing at one thing. Mm. You know, life is complex as a mm. as a working parent now or, any you know, any adult, any job that you have actually. It's more muddy now. You're juggling so many different things. Yeah, and so I actually have had to learn to find the beauty in the muddiness of life because it's for a long time I think I was fighting that because I was so used to just having a single pursuit and now I realize that I can either fight mm. <laughs> complexity of life for the next 60 years or I can actually find the, the little nice nuances in it or the things that I did well in working through it or go you know what this is crazy life guess there's no answer and everyone's answer is different so I actually really too as I've grown I've been able to learn about so many other people that's one of the great things about digital technology we can just listen to podcasts or, or read books or audio books when you know it's not just folding the laundry now I get mm-hmm. like I'm excited because I'm going to jump back into somebody's story listening to an audio book when I'm doing housework <laughs> mm. by learning more about other people it's really made me mm-hmm. feel part of the human race and normalize some of the highs and lows that I have yeah so I've probably got an appreciation that comes which I wouldn't have known as my 16 year old self. (laughs) Do your kids ski? Have you taught them? did take them up to the snow. We went to Mount Buller last year and the kids loved it. My daughter challenged me in every way because she would not listen to anything I had to say. (laughs) (laughs) No, mum, I like to go fast. I don't like to turn. It's it's scary, but it's fun. Oh, so she's got a bit of mum about her then. (laughs) She's a daredevil. Straight to ski school for you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my children are amazing. Parenting has its really made me have to find a whole new level of patience. Mm-hmm. And I, that's probably why I have to do a little more self-care now because there's not as much downtime. Kids are energetic. But every time there's a hole, I'm like, let's go outside. Let's do some sport. Let's throw the ball. Let's go scootering. <laughs> so mm-hmm. just try and wear them out. But they do love the skiing. But I'm really just trying to get the kids into a diverse range of sports so they can find their passion. Mm-hmm. We do dancing and music and craft and all that sort of stuff yeah. too. So I feel like... 
I was given a lot of opportunity by my parents and you know that's the least I can try to do for my kids and teach them how to negotiate <laughs> are they, they pitching for their own pocket money <laughs> they will be <laughs> We've actually, they're only young but uh, yeah. we're really big on team in our house and that everyone's working for the greater good of the team so if my husband has a big meeting you know what can we do to make life easier for him in the morning tomorrow and mum's come home she's had a big day let's all like have you know big family meal and talk about it and you know what did you do well today and what are you proud of and what did you learn so we really just try and share a lot and a big part of sharing is sharing the duties in the house not mum's job it's not dad's job it's all of us and we all have to pitch in for the team in that way we also get to show gratitude for what everyone contributes to so as they evolve they'll have other ways I guess to earn money (laughs) but we all have to all have to do some of the housework in my house (laughs) well the rest of your team is already en route back to Hong Kong and you've got a flight to catch so we better let you get to the airport thanks for the wonderful chat thank you so inspiring oh shush from you (laughs) I'm just the world's biggest overachiever and such a delight and and I've enjoyed getting to know you so much over recent months uh, through AIA as well so it's a pleasure to be able to share this with the future women community because I know that everyone's going to get a lot out of it so thank you oh my pleasure Thank you so much to Elisa for chatting to us between her many travel commitments. You will find her on Instagram at Elisa Camplin. I'm Sylvia Jeffries. Don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever podcast app you're using. Give us a rating if you're on iTunes. And if you really enjoyed this chat, please go ahead and leave a review while you're there. You can stay up to date with the latest Future Women events at futurewomen.com. This podcast was brought to you by AIA, supporting Australians to live healthier, longer, better lives. AIA Insurance for life, health and well-being. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you can join us next week for a chat with Maggie Palmer from Pep Talker.